Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. 61 Local is a convivial public house celebrating locally crafted food, drink, and the people who make it. 61 Local regularly hosts programming and events spotlighting the spirited Brooklyn community. Check out our public calendar for upcoming classes and shindigs, including the monthly readings with the Folding Chair series. Backfat Variety Show and Homebrew Tastings every Sunday through December. Make sure to grab something to drink and eat from the regularly rotating lineup of craft beers, Long Island wines, and East Coast snacks. That's 61 local. Be there or be square. Honest to God, when I was assigned the Hulk, I thought I would last six months. That's why it was, it's hysterical me, to me that now Marvel's putting out these trade collections called Visionaries. Peter David, Visionaries. I had no freaking clue what I was doing. I thought that, honest to God, if I lasted six months, that would be miraculous. But I found that the longer I stayed with the character, the more that I analyzed what made the character who he was, the more ways I found the more ways I found myself getting into his mind, especially when I came to the realization that to all intents and purposes, his background made him a prime candidate for what was then called MPD, multiple personality disorder. And that opened up just a host of story possibilities, especially when I read that the solution or the way that they treat MPD is with hypnosis to try and merge all the various personalities together into one. And that seemed to create the reason why all these years of trying to cure Banner of being the Hulk had never worked. Because they were always treating the surface problem, which was the Hulk, and they were never getting below the surface to Banner's fundamental uh, mental instability. And when it comes to mental instability, I could totally relate to that. (laughs) And... The more I so I decided early on in the run that eventually I would do a story that led up to the character being treated via hypnosis to be merged into one incarnation of the Hulk, which is what I eventually did four years later. And I spent all that time laying the yeah, I spent all the time laying the groundwork towards that eventual thing, with the notion that the result would be Bruce Banner if he had been a whole integrated individual. Um, and the, the fact that he was still big and green was explained by the fact that he was shot through with gamma radiation and, you know, didn't die. Um, and also, eventually, 
the the story became more and more about Banner and his wife Betty. And the longer I started, the longer I wrote the Hulk, the more the Hulk started reflecting me, and Betty started reflecting my my wife. And here's the interesting thing. <laughs> um, Eventually, my wife left me, um, and I was brainstorming with my editor, and Bobby said, you know, it's two directions you're going to go, and she said, you know, Peter, um, I, 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 if I'm stepping over a line here, then tell me, but you always said that you would never kill off Betty because she not only represents your wife, but your wife said that she's, your, she's her favorite character, and I went, yeah... And she said, well, here's the sore point. Um, Your wife has left you. I went, yeah. She said, so what if, and I said, you're thinking we should kill off Betty? And she said, well, it would certainly shake it up. And I said, fine, she's toast. And, And actually, the point at which, if you go back and look at the comic, the day and time where Betty dies on an operating table is the exact day and time that my divorce became finalized. <laughs> so where do you get your ideas? Write what you know. But is that, I mean, obviously, yes, write, write what you know, but do you have to find that hook, that personal thing that speaks to you in oh, the character? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are certain characters that I've written and have never been able to really feel comfortable with. The Punisher. I've had trouble with. I've written Punisher stories, but it's not easy. I had Lobo appear in an issue of Aquaman, and I had a very difficult time writing Lobo. Um, but no problem writing Aquaman? No, none whatsoever. What, what did you attach to in that character? Tarzan. Okay. I mean, I grew up I, reading Edgar Rice Burroughs. I love the Tarzan books. Mm-hmm. And I felt that Aquaman is essentially the Tarzan of the DC universe. Um, you know, he's, he's at, at, in an even bigger jungle. Because he's got three quarters of the planet to be able to play around in. So, but he's got the nobility. Everyone looks up to him. He's the ocean lord as opposed to the jungle lord. So I would just, to, to write Aquaman, I would just tap into my inner Edgar Rice Burroughs and access that, that 13 and 14-year-old me who, who loved those tales. And that's, and that's you know, why I made Aquaman into the you know, butt-kicking Tarzan of, of the seas. There's another, I mean, a great run. Thank you. I'm curious about this for you, too, Bill. Um, in writing, for example, South Park, you know, do you have to do the same thing? Do you have to dig deep into these characters no. and <laughs> find the thing you respond to? No. Uh, Thank God. No. Well, I should, I mean, to make clear, I don't, I mean, when I, you write on South Park, it really is Trey Parker and, yeah. and Matt Stone. We should talk about that process for a minute. You're in the room. South Park You're just in the room. You're just, you kind of show up and, and they're, you know, it's, they kind of have an idea. What we do is, how I started working with them is I became friends with, with Matt, and then he said, would you like to come to one of our retreats? And what they do is they go to a retreat it's, it's heaven. They go to some cool place on the earth, and you sit in a really expensive place, uh, and, and Trey will go, okay, let's start talking about South Park ideas. Um, well, I went to Seattle, and uh, we were hanging out in Seattle, and, and, uh, and Matt said, oh, you know, we have breakfast, and then we kind of have a time off, and then we do, like, after lunch we work for a little bit, and then we go out and do whatever. And I was like, I was so great. 
So he showed up, and we didn't have anything to talk about. And then Matt was talking how he had just seen Indiana Jones in the Chris- King of the Crystal Skull. And he said, it was like a rape. He goes, it was a rape. He goes, I felt like I was watching a rape. And uh, it was like I was watching my favorite character be raped. And, um, and we were like, oh, yeah. Uh, and then Trey goes, so the boys go to a movie. They go in, they see... And, and, and then, he, and then they come out, and then they go, our friend, our friend's been raped. Our friend was raped. And they go to the cops, our friend was raped. And Matt's like, yeah, right, right, right. So they go, and then it's like the two of them just talking, and me and Vernon Chapman and Erica Rivenoy are just kind of watching. And they go, all right. And they just watched it all happen. And then what happened, and it became an episode where he gets raped. It was part of an episode. They go, I don't know if that's a full episode. But then they had this other idea of P.F. Chang's, that they wanted to do this P.F. Chang's thing. And so they were like, well, maybe that can be one episode. I don't know. And then that's it. You don't hear about it. And then we talk about it a little bit, and then you don't hear about it. And then months and months and months later, when the actual season starts, you sit down, and, and then Trey will have his laptop open and go, okay, so three months ago we talked about the rape thing, Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, and they have, and, and since then, I think maybe it's this, that, you know, he's had time to kind of ruminate on it. But, you know, um, and then another idea from that, that, that thing was we were messing, we came with the, this Kanye West episode with fish sticks. And that was, and that was also from, we went to, we went to the, the Seattle, um, it's like this fishing thing where fish jump, like as a fishing cannery thing. I don't know what it was. But we were, and, and Matt was saying, wouldn't it be funny if like a, one of like an evil Knievel fish just went, Wee! like over the thing like on a bike, like a fish on a motorcycle, and we started laughing. And then, of course, someone was like, oh, it has a big dick. And we were like, of course. Um, naturally. And then someone was like, oh, it has a big dick. And then you said, oh, uh, a fish dick? And you were like, no, f- no, like it has a big dick. And you go, fish dicks. And then it became this, that dumb thing. And then on the ride back from that to the hotel, Trey pretty much had figured out the whole episode. Uh, so, so once they come back to you, you know, uh, three months later, what is the role of any of these writers that they employ. Well, you just kind of help them out. It's, you're really just helping Trey out with his, Trey and Matt out with their idea. And what the interesting is, is watching Trey, it's like he has these tent pole, it's like he has these kind of tent pole scenes. So we have this, and this, and this, and act, so he has a big board, act one, act two, act three, and he's like, okay, this, and this, and this, or in act one, this is in act two, and then we know what the ending is, act three, we have, and they're all funny. This is all really, this is really making us laugh. And then this is really, this is funny stuff. And, and Matt is really good as Matt is going, yeah, 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 but what are we trying to say? Like, what is the point of this thing? You know, Matt is the kind of guy going, you know, like uh, we did the, the, I worked on the, the human Sentai pad one, whereas the, the, that one. And Matt, that started with Matt going, no, 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 but. Like, Apple could tell me, we will sew your lips to another man's asshole, and he could shit in your mouth. And I would go, okay, where do I sign up? I love Apple products. <laughs> and so that's how that whole episode came about, was him saying, no, 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 I will 100% do that. And, it will, you know, and, and so it would kind of go off course, and he would go, nope. It's about how Apple's awesome, and they can sew it. You know, it was all... And he would, he's the guy... When I watch Book of Mormon or I watch the movie, it's, you could so clearly tell it really is the two of those guys make a perfect... And you just kind of help out. You throw out ideas or, um, 
um, you know. Yeah, and that kind of collaborative relationship is not uncommon, you know, in any of the kinds of writing that any of us do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating, though, that one is so zeroed in to have that, that kind it's of It's like the perfect, they kind of perfectly match yeah, into each other. Right. And it's really, me- I mean, Trey Parker and Matt, when they go off on something, it's like the funniest thing I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Uh, I want to talk about that collaboration or the effect of collaboration for a second uh, with you, Peter. Um, tell us about, you're a comic book writer, yeah. primarily. Um, you collaborate with artists. You collaborate with editors. Uh, take us inside that a little bit. What is that relationship like? You know, if you can think of some, some you know, well, sure. there's, typical examples. There's, there's different levels of collaboration. There's the day-to-day putting out of the book. You send the script to the, to the editor who, who uh, gives back his opinions then you ignore the opinion no i'm kidding um you get you you send to the editor and then you go back and forth until you're both satisfied with the script and then it goes to the artist who comes up with his own contributions including character designs that kind of thing um i write full script so there's not a ton of collaboration Can you talk to us to step us back even more to talk about the difference between full script or the, uh, you know the old marvel style the, the, the old marvel style came from the days when stan lee was writing something like nine or ten books. And what would happen is that, say, Jack Kirby would come in and Stan would say, okay, Jack, now this issue of the Fantastic Four, the FF don't have their powers and Dr. Doom has taken over the Baxter building. And they have to try and stop him and they're led by Daredevil. Okay, and Jack would go, okay, Stan. And he would come back a month later, or even three weeks later, with 22 pages of awesomeness, which Stan would then, and he would have his little liner notes of what the dialogue should be, which were generally terrible. And it's no knock on Kirby. I mean, if you look at the stuff that was written by Kirby in dialogue, the, the fourth world stuff, it was freaking bizarre. I actually once wrote the Deep Six Kirby villains into Aquaman and I started dialoguing them and they didn't seem right and I realized why because they didn't sound like Kirby characters so I had to start putting in strange emphasis in random places you know (laughs) and then they sounded right and I got angry letters from people saying that uh, but then now that's the day to day Um, on the other hand there's also large get togethers where all the writers of a group will try to chart things out for instance, a bunch of years ago, there was an X-Men retreat, and, um, and it was myself and the other writers, and Bob Harris was the editor at the time, and the, the big, we were planning the big multi-issue crossover that we were going to do at that time, and the big, one of the big centerpieces was going to be that Wolverine squares off against Magneto, and I'm thinking out loud, and I say, you know, if I'm Magneto... I don't even bother with Wolverine. I just rip out his skeleton and I'm done with him. And they all look at each other. And they go, that's great. And I said, no, it's not. And they said, yes, it is. We'll have him rip his skeleton out. And I said, are we killing Wolverine? And they said, no, he has a healing factor. I said, a healing factor? He's going to be a healed puddle of meat on the floor. The man has no skeleton. <laughs> this, are, you, are, you absolutely, are you absolutely insane? It was like the thing in Soap Dish. You will have no brain when the operation is complete. Um, 
That was, right? That was one of the funniest scenes in the history of movies. Take the damn thing. It's gone. I love that film. At any rate, um, <laughs> oh, it's, it, is, it is one of my two forgotten gems, the other one being Movie Movie. Uh, George C. Scott. It was, uh, it was a split movie. I think it was Stanley Donnan. And it was brilliant. It was supposed to be a send-off of the old 1930s and 40s films. And it was a split feature. The first half was a black and white film with George C. Scott and red buttons and an insanely young, you know, insanely young Barry Boswick and a whole bunch of people. And it was a 1930s boxing film. Then the second half was called Baxter's Beauties and it was in color. All the same people doing the same type of roles... Um, and it, they even kept using the same sets, except since it was in color, you so, supposedly couldn't tell. And there was a thing in between that was for um, uh, an air, it was for a, a, a World War One flying ace film, again with red buttons of George C. Scott, with the NASA's going young men giving their young lives, and it's George C. Scott and Red Buttons who are in their 50s and 60s at a black shoe polish. And I always remember, with the one thing I remember that is the pilot going to George C. Scott. I can't. I can't go up again. He says, very well, sir. But if you don't go up, then by God, you'll stay down. <laughs> it was, oh, movie, movie, brilliant. It's just disappeared off everyone's radar. If you can find it, go watch it. At any, at any rate, so I'm sitting there arguing against my own idea. <laughs> going, this is the most stupid thing we could possibly do. Did and they freaking did it. Did they get you on board? Sorry? Did they get you on board? Uh, on board? No, I still think it's a stupid idea. <laughs> Thank God it didn't happen to any of the issues that I was writing. Okay, I thought it was utterly moronic. And the way that they got around it was that they had Magneto just extract the adamantium from him. And I'm thinking, well, that's not what I suggested. And that doesn't make any sense. Why is he doing surgery? <laughs> the whole point is to put paid to Wolverine and done. But they did that, and so essentially, if you hate the bone claws, then that's pretty much my fault. But uh, so yeah, collaboration can happen in the damnedest ways. Um, talk to me about collaborating with briefly about collaborating with an artist. Uh, have you had, any particular artist? Have you had one that kind of sticks out as a perfect collaboration? George Perez. Um, George Perez and I did a two-part Hulk story called Future Imperfect, and it was freaking brilliant. That one was written Marvel style. Because You know why? Because when you're collaborating with George Perez, you tell him what the story is that you want, and then you get the hell out of his way. Because what he's going to come up with on the page is going to be so transcendently better than anything that you could come up with for a full script that it would be criminal to try and put, you know, put constraints on him. And, and he was incredible. I mean, the detail that he put into stuff was just beyond belief. One of, just as an example, there was a two-page spread in there. That's, the story is set 100 years or something like that in the future, and it's Rick Jones's trophy room. Rick, at this point in the story, is something like 118. Um, and he's got the trophy room with all this stuff that he's been collecting over the years. And I said to George, the only things that need to be in here for our final battle sequence that's going to be the climax of the thing is I need, let's see, the Silver Surfer's board, Thor's hammer, Wolverine's skeleton, <laughs> and Captain America's shield. Other than that, put in whatever the hell you want. And he turned in this two-page spread that was demented. I mean, there had to be over 100 items in yeah. there. Everything he had, Nova's, he had a whole array of helmets. He had, he had uh, 
Tom Servo from Mystery Science Theater, just propped over in a corner. Um, Archie Andrews' letter jacket. I mean, everything you could put. It's like a big man. Everything. And nothing has been omitted. And really, nothing had been omitted. It was, it was, there was so much detail in that, we actually ran a contest. Name everything that's in there. It was, yeah, there was, he had a pile of gold bricks and one green one on top. For no particular reason. One green one. I made a whole storyline in an issue of Captain Marvel out of that one freaking green brick. It was, it was amazing. So, yeah, jo- collaborating with George was probably... I remember when the Village Voice dismissed Stan Lee as a writer of word balloons. And I was, I was livid when I, when I read that because all you have to do is... And again, not a knock on Kirby. Look at Kirby's dialoguing style in The New Gods and, and the Fourth World stuff, and then look at the dialogue in Fantastic Four and Thor and all of that, and you see how much Stan brought to the party. But yeah, uh, in, in, that, in instances like that, yes, I write the dialogue, and I try to respond to things that are in the artwork that George has added that wasn't in, in the story, um, as opposed to when I write full script, which I'm doing more and more now, because these days I never know who's going to be uh, drawing the books. And some artists are more adept at storytelling than others. And when I do stuff full script, I just have more control over the thing. And I'm essentially holding the hand of some of the younger artists who just aren't on George Perez's level, which is no knock on them because there's a lot of long-time pros who are not on George's level. Well, I want to come back to the content in those scripts in a minute. But, uh, Phil, let's get back to you. Um, tell us... <laughs> you, are, you are the first Saturday Night Live writer that we've had on these panels. All right. So take us inside. What is <laughs> right, because it's not like there's any books. Yeah, I know, yeah. They can't buy any books on those. Actually, it's happening right now, actually, as we these speak. These are people who listen to podcasts. They don't read um, Well, I don't, you know... You know, a typical week while the show is uh, going on. Well, mon- uh, I mean, the, the, sh- the quick answer is Monday's our pitch meeting. Um... And then Tuesday, we write the show. We stay up. Uh, I don't, but uh, anymore, because uh, I have kids. But uh, uh, people will show up usually around, you know, between noon or 1, and then they stay until Wednesday until the table read starts at 4. And then you sit through the whole table read. So it's like a 36-hour people are just thing. And then Thursday, um, Thursday and Friday is when we do pre-tapes. Um, and block the sketches. So any pre-tape that you see on the show is shot usually on Friday. A lot of people go, oh, so when did you guys shoot? And I'm like, we shot yesterday. (laughs) All those digital shorts were all shot. A lot of them were shot on Friday night. There was one we did. um, I remember Andy came. It was with Shia LaBeouf where we're all shooting each other. It was called Dear Sister. Yeah, One guy saw it, yeah. Uh, Uh, that was they. That was like as we we're all leaving at midnight, and they went, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! We got a hotel room uh, in Fifty Second Street. We're gonna go shoot something." And we went and did that, and it, and we're done at four a.m. Went home, and then I had to be back at work to do the show at two. Uh, Kiva Schaffer, or uh, we always have different people, but yeah, they would sh- go in and edit it, and they would just basically not sleep for twenty-four, thirty hours. I would imagine that's how it is. Yeah, it, it, you just, you're kind of all, everybody, if you go to the after party, everybody's just kind of like, hey. <laughs> and especially when we do, because today starts, we're about to do three in a row, and, the, and when you do three weeks in a row, you're just like, 
you just don't know where you are anymore. Um, and we did four in a row once, and yeah, by the fourth show, we're all like, yeah, like we're all going crazy. I'm curious, will I interrupt for one sec about, you know, oh. when you get... More than two in a row, are you guys able to get ahead at all? No. No, uh, and now you just kind of learn like that's kind of the best way to go. I remember thinking like, oh, this this summer I'm going to work on some stuff and do anything. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, every once in a while we'll kind of talk about something, and John Mulaney will sometimes he's a writer on the show will sometimes text me a line for like something or what about this guy or you know whatever. Um, but mostly it's just that week and you, you show up like right now we're doing the pitch meeting if Daniel Craig is the host so we all sit there and we go hi and so Daniel Craig will come in and we all come in and he's sitting there in Lauren's office and, and Lauren Michaels will go Daniel Craig and everybody goes and we all clap and then he goes alright now you know so and so and he'll go around the room and he uh, does talk like yeah, he does. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Just like, and and he, you know, will say, you know, Bill, you know, whatever, and yeah. And it's essentially you just, you just. Oh, I have an idea. We're uh, we're tiny uh, baristas, and then um, and then a James Bond thing. I'll tell you about later. And then and then, but if you want to lay claim to something, like if you want to do something about the teacher strike or the debates, or I have an idea about. Um, I remember when uh, There Will Be Blood came out, and I was like, oh, I think I could do that guy. I, in the pitch meeting, was like, oh, and There Will Be Blood thing. But I didn't know what it was, but I was just like, I, I, I want to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know what it is. You know, and so you kind of lay claim to it. Um, I, everyone's different. Uh, Will Forte would not start writing until 4 a.m. He, would he wouldn't even think about anything until 4 or 5 a.m. And you would, I would go home, and I would sleep and shower and come back, and he would be there writing in his office and be like, I just had this idea where you and I are going to, you know. Uh, and he would just be, you know. And and, um, and then I was much more, you know, like Daniel Craig, I knew he was coming, so I would kind of say ahead of time, oh, maybe this or maybe that or maybe this week would be a good week for this thing or, you know. Um, I'm curious about something. <laughs> yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I like it when someone like who has a persona comes in like that, and then you know uh, can can be silly. You know, like one of our b- biggest shows was when um, Brian Williams hosted Brian because he knows him from the news, and then he comes out and he's doing accents and stuff, and everybody was like, ah! like people went nuts. People were like, no. <laughs> Like, this woman in the front row was like, no, no! Like, and we were like, jeez. Like it was the most insane audience reaction. Every word he said, they were like, yes. Um, but I, I didn't... Uh, I, and then you would think with a comedian, it'd be, you know, bigger. But no, man. Charles Barkley, when he comes on, people go insane. They love seeing someone, that persona, uh, them mess, messing around with their persona. Who's willing to be silly, yeah. Um, is it, is it a, I imagine it's a different kind of challenge when you have someone who's known for comedy. Yeah, well, they definitely have... Well, it, everyone's different. Really? Are we that boring? This, uh, <laughs> this guy's like, I'm out of here. Are you getting uh, a drink? <laughs> no. Will you bring us one? Sure. <laughs> you guys want a drink? For everyone... No, I'm just yeah. drinking water. Never mind. For everybody at home, a, a guy just jumped out a window. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, um, no. Yeah, but a comedy performer. Yeah, comedy performer. I, I, you know what? Usually they're all great. Like when Zach Galifianakis comes in, you just give him whatever, and he can kind of make it his own thing, and 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 they know what what's funny. And a guy like Zach, you go, oh yeah, he's been doing stand up for so long. He knows how to play an audience so well. So in dress rehearsal. <laughs> All these things you didn't know were laughs. He's suddenly making hilarious, you know, and and um, that's great. Or, or you know, John Hamm. When John Hamm hosts, he just—it's like he's more of a comedian. Like you know, when he first hosted, we we're like, oh, it's that Don Draper thing. And now, people see how, like how funny he can be. Um, but no, it, not really. No, I mean, it's it's a. It, 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 it you have no idea what's going to work. You have absolutely zero idea what's going to work. Uh, yeah, and that's that's something I'm really. This is my seventh season, eighth, seventh or eighth season. Actually, today is this the 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 seventh year anniversary of my first show. Yeah, I just found that out today. Yeah. Um, seven years in, is it any clearer to you? No. That's so crazy. No, I don't think it ever will be. I mean, you know, what was it the. Uh, when Akira Kurosawa got the Lifetime Achievement Oscar and he went up and, and he's 90 years old, greatest filmmaker on earth, and he's like, I'm still trying to figure this shit out. <laughs> it was funny seeing the translators say that. She's like, I'm still trying to figure this shit out. <laughs> uh, the, whole, the, whole thing, the whole thing with comedy is that comedy is ultimately the most democratic form of entertainment yeah. in that if people laugh, it's funny. If they don't laugh... It's not funny, no matter how hysterical you thought it was when you were first. Yeah, but the other thing though is sometimes with our live with a live audience there, you realize how much the live audience uh, brings to it when they find oh, something funny. Sure. Because we've had shows that I'm sitting there and going, "This is funny," and this audience is not finding this funny. No. Sometimes you will sit there and you go, "Yes, we're doing good nights," and I'm like, "Sorry, everybody, sorry." <laughs> That was very bad. We're so On sorry. the other hand, the tickets are free and you get what you pay for. Yeah, so. yeah. You could say you went to SNL. Now go home. Uh, but no, it, it, it. But then there's some some shows where it's just the you know. I remember, gosh, what was it? I want to say it was Scarlett Scarlett Johansson Arcade Fire show. We had a show that she was great and it was awesome. And and Vanessa Bayer was doing this thing that was making me laugh. It was so funny. And, and everything, and I was like, why isn't anything really playing the way it should play, you know? And, um, yeah, you just don't know. No. And then there's shows where we're like, we're toast. This is dead. We're the, where this is so not good. And then um, it, it destroys. And you're like, yeah. whoa, how did that happen, you know? I mean, um, it is so, I mean, I've uh, hardly the same level, but I've done community theater. And the thing that's insane is that I you get up lie, there. It's hard. <laughs> it is. Don't lie. It's no. hard. I did community theater. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's so hard. It's terrifying. There's, there's, this one, there's this one time where, where we were backstage and this old woman is being led up and she's going, you said we are going to be in the front row. Yes, Mom, we are in the front row. Then who are those people in front of us? That's the orchestra, Mom. This is a musical? It's like, but at any rate, the thing is that we would get up there and we would do stuff, and it's the same material every night. And there would be some nights where you can hear freaking crickets chirping, and there's other nights where the same material, same actors doing it the same way, it kills. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, you do... Um 
uh, uh, what do you call it, the uh, guy, uh, Stefan, that I do an update. People, like, the first couple of times I did that, it was like silence, like nothing. People were like, what the fuck is this? And then one Stephon's time on update, hysterical. one time on update, suddenly it was like, mm-hmm. oh, it works. And everybody was like, we now agree on this, you know? <laughs> and I was like, but it, we, because we did it on update, you know? Um, Ste- Stefan works best when it looks like you were about to lose it. Well, because John Mulaney <laughs> writes stuff in that I haven't seen. Yeah, oh. yeah he puts stuff in. Yeah, John Mulaney puts in words and things. It started with, um, we had a club promoter whose name was Amnesia Bernstein, which we found funny. <laughs> but the dress audience did not find funny. The dress and audience was not Jewish. They were like, no. Uh, and then I, uh, I, we were kind of running around, and this is like the thing. You, we, you do the dress rehearsal. It ends, you know, whatever, 9.30, 9.45 sometimes. And then we're having a meeting at 10.15 where the show is being decided. And Lauren will come to you and say, that needs to be completely rewritten. That needs to be completely done. Uh, we did a Vincent Price special once where John Hamm was Dean Martin. And then at dress rehearsal, uh, Lauren went, his Dean Martin isn't really working. He needs something else. Can you do someone else? And he went, I can do James Mason. And he was like, all right, we'll do James Mason. Write it for James Mason. And so we didn't have time. So if you watch it, it's him doing James Mason. But if you listen to it, he's doing Dean Martin jokes. It's all about him being drunk. And it's like, I was so drunk today and all this stuff. And we're kind of like, well, it's not. Um, but we have no time. It's like, so, uh, so I was talking to John. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Uh, uh, they didn't like Amnesia Bernstein. He's like, well, what do you want to make it? And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I don't have time. And I just ran away. Because um, I was in the cold open or something. And uh, I had to get ready for the cold open. And I was, uh, which is nerve-wracking. And then, uh, and then um, I'm reading the cards live on air. And I get to where Amnesia Bernstein. He changed it to Gay Leota. <laughs> And I started laughing. And then I could just see this look on John's eyes like, oh, yes. Now I know what to do. And then he'll do, like, it's always little, like, Spud Webb was one of the things in one of the clubs, which made me laugh. He's a little basketball player. And then, and then so Spud Webb, it was, like, broken glass, a churn of butter, Spud Webb, blah, blah, you know. Uh, it, it, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and then the only thing he changed was he put Spud Webb in the second club, too, without telling me, and I lost it. And Seth Meyers knew he was coming out, and Seth Meyers went, oh, Spud Webb pulling double duty. And I, like, I just was like... And what you don't see is what I see is the camera guys, the guy holding the cue card, Chris uh, Kelly, who's our stage manager, off the side, everyone is laughing. And the guy micing me, he's like, you're dead tonight, man. You're going to laugh. I can see it in your face. You're about to laugh. And so that's why I laugh all the time. It works great. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, I get mad, and I, I asked Lauren Michaels. I was like, I, I went up to him. I was like, I'm so sorry. I keep, I keep breaking. I really apologize. And he was like, When what you say, when what you're saying isn't funny, and you're laughing to save the sketch, then I get mad at you. But what you're saying is hilarious. We did, we, I broke again last season of the Californians, the sketch of the Californians, because Fred Armisen at, was, kept going, Wee! like the way he was talking, no one speaks that way. And Kristen and I were like, what are you doing? And it was during dress, he came out and he's like, Wee! like he, he hadn't done that during rehearsal, he hadn't done that anything, and then at dress rehearsal he just started talking this weird way. 
and I the dress rehearsal is online. I am I can't speak. I'm completely gone. And then we were walking, and it was at the end of the show. And then when I walked up, walked in to the meeting, we see what the running order is, and Lauren had made it the first sketch of the night, which to me was like, Bill, we're gonna get Bill on this, you know, and, and Kristen and. Um, yeah, he made it. If you watch it on air, he puts a lot of mustard on that first line. <laughs> He's like, ooh, what? And, he like, and I can't. It was so funny. It, it never seemed to hurt the Cower Burnett show, and that was edited. So, I know, you know, that's true. That's I mean, true. You live for the times when Harvey Corman would be broken up by Tim Conway or that oh, kind of best. thing. I mean, the last, the last time I went to see SNL Live, just to show how far back it goes, John Belushi was doing Samurai Delicatessen. Wow. You were in the audience for that? I was in the audience wow, for him doing Samurai Delicatessen. Buck Henry? And, was that Buck Henry or was that... No, Buck Henry was... In no, the, I don't uh, think it was Buck Henry. I don't no, think it wasn't it was Buck Henry. Buck Henry's in the dry cleaner one. Yeah, no, yeah, this yeah. was Samurai... Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was, it was Samurai Delicatessen. I was in the audience for that. Uh, you can hear me laugh. Um, but, oh, that, that was just... Free. I mean, it's like I was up in the cheap seats, but uh, it was still just all incredible. The, the energy. <laughs> what? They're all pretty good seats. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're all cheap seats. They're all um, cheap seats. But the, the, en- <laughs> the thing that was amazing was the energy that you just get out of, you know, out of watching it live. I mean, it's just... I mean, countdown. Do they do the countdown? We're about to go live. Do they do that? Where if you're in the cold open and you always come up and it's like a presidential address from, you know, whatever it is. And I remember I was Elliot Spitzer once or whatever. And it's just you sitting there and they go, one minute. And you're just sitting there with the whole audience and all the cameras. And you're like, I, I don't know, like, dude. 50 seconds. <laughs> 40 seconds. I don't, I, don't rem- I don't remember that. On the other hand, it was 30 years ago, and I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. Um, but, yeah, it, it was. You know. oh, I wasn't. I, I'm not quizzing you, man. <laughs> no, I honestly, honestly don't remember. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. What? Uh, I remember sitting there going, wow, that's what Don Pardo looks like. How yeah, cool. Don Pardo's still alive. I know. He's almost 100 years old. <laughs> I would he is. Throw, he seriously I, No, no I totally believe it. Because I remember Don Pardo from the, from the original Jeopardy. And now I'm still going, wow, that's Don Pardo. How cool is this? Yeah. I, I once... <laughs> When I was at N- when I was when I was attending NYU, get out they, of here. Yeah, they, get us a beer. They once they once brought in John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. It was the first year of SNL to talk about comedy, and we were packed into the auditorium at NYU. And Belushi and Aykroyd are talking about comedy, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. And then Dan Aykroyd is and standing over to the side is the person from the NYU speech department. You know, a speech writer who had stood there and had was organized, who had organized the whole thing. So she was standing there smiling because this was going great, and she was all responsible. And then Dan Aykroyd says, "And now, ladies and gentlemen, our grand finale." And we hear from off, 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 off uh, stage, a chainsaw revving up. <laughs> the woman is standing there like this. What the hell? <laughs> Out comes Belushi with goggles and a chainsaw and proceeds to split the podium in half vertically. 
down the thing right through the NYU seal. The woman who had been so glowing proud a few minutes earlier is standing there. All the blood in her body has gone into her shoes. And she's going, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And Belushi cut the whole damn thing in half, and it stood there for a moment, defying gravity, and then slowly it split in half with a, with a crack like a tree. And we all stood on our feet, and we were cheering like total lunatics. And they said, thank you very much. And they were gone. It was one of the great nights of my life. Different time. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. <laughs> this is actually this brings me to uh, a good segue. It brings me to a question I had. Uh, Bill, let's start with you and then go to Peter. But tell me about your background as a consumer of entertainment. Uh, you know, what were the things that influenced you early on? Were you a Saturday Night Live fan? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, my, but my cast for SNL was probably like Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, that era. Um, they were so good. They really were great. Um, no, I mean, Phil Hartman was the kind of guy, uh, Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, that sketch in particular. <laughs> I just was like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, uh, God, that sketch was funny. Um, uh, but... Um, Tarzan, 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 Yeah, well, that, yeah it's only Hartman breaks, yeah. <laughs> I asked John Lovitz when he came and hosted. I said, "Why did he break?" And he goes, "I don't know idea why." Both Kevin Nealon and John, those like, they have no idea why he broke. Um, but uh, I guess uh, comedy-wise, uh, Monty Python was a pretty big influence. Um, I mean, movie, like the Mel Brooks uh, early movies, yeah. Um, but a lot of British stuff. I, I really like like early Woody Allen movies. Love and Death. Is His earlier funny ones. Yeah, the early funny ones from Stardust Memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty usual suspects. And was there was there a point uh, that you can kind of pinpoint where you said, "Oh, somebody's writing this material. Someone's behind it." I I, I remember Woody Allen just talking about writing it. Like I read something with him where he talked about writing his own stuff to protect it. And I didn't understand what that. I was like, "What does that mean? Who is he protecting it from?" Like I was so young, I was like, "Who is he? What?" Uh, so I'm going to steal it. Uh, but um, but then I then I understood that as I got you know a little older and and um, but no, I mean to me it it was such a weird. It's just a it was just a cool thing. Doug Kenny was a guy. I always see his name. Doug Kenny. That guy. He wrote you know Animal House and uh, Caddyshack. Um, and you would just see people's names. You would see, like, some person, you know, Harold Ramis was another thing. But I also like the fact that all those guys, those, um, the Monty Python guys, wrote their own stuff. I thought that was cool. Like, the British, you know, like, you see Faulty Towers, and you're like, it's by John Cleese. You know what I mean? Which I thought was very cool. Well, from a comedic point of view, uh, a, a, a lot of bills. Um, uh, Mel Brooks. Yes, absolutely. My favorite, my favorite film of his was one that a lot of people have never even heard of called The Twelve Chairs. That's a great movie. It was, it's it, his second movie. It's, it's really funny. It's, it's, it's the only film of his that at its core is a tragedy. And it's, it just blew me away. It stars an incredibly young Frank Langello, or as he was known at the time, Frank Langello. And... Um, and it was that, that was it was a brilliant film. Um, uh, other sources of comedy, yeah, the Carol Burnett show. Just just watching how th- how they could 
they seem to be having such a damn good time. Also, the original Dick Van Dyke show, which was and is a complete masterpiece. Oh, yeah, it's great. No, that, that show was amazing, yeah. That was the best thing about Nick, and Knight, uh, Nick at Night. Yes, to, like, introducing it to a whole, yeah, new, yeah, whole totally. new generation. A whole new generation has to see Laura Petrie blabbing on air that, that Alan Brady wears a wig. <laughs> Here I, she is, boys. Here's a little lady who put you out of business. I mean, you know, it's just... Oh, God, I have no I idea what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry I'm joking. I'm, jo- I'm totally joking. Yeah, I know. He's toying with me. Um, from, a, from, a, from a literary point of view, my, my science fiction influences uh, Harlan Ellison. Woo! Easily. Um, which is really cool because... Harlan Ellison told me to fuck off once. Really? <laughs> he did. I saw Harlan Ellison across the street. Yeah. I saw the apartment for interrupting, and I saw him in the Westman. I go, whoa, Harlan, Harlan Ellison. And he went, fuck you. And I went, yeah! <laughs> it was the perfect interaction with Harlan Ellison. You could not have asked for a better... My, my, first, my first interaction with Harlan was at the Washington, D.C. Science uh, World Con. Uh, 1974, and I was there on a press pass. I was covering it for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, and I was there in the press room, and they said, now, can you give us a list of people that you'd like to talk to? And I listed several, Roger Zelazny, who was another wonderful fantasist, and I said, also Harlan Ellison. And, I, and they said, well, that might be a little bit tricky. And suddenly I hear, one side coming through, and this blur of motion knocks me to one side. And I went, who the hell was that asshole? And they went, oh, that was Harlan Ellison. <laughs> um, he was the best man of my wedding, by the way. He was? Yes. Harlan, Harlan is a dear friend. He was the best man of my wedding. Really? At my second wedding. Right so hand to God. I remember yelling at a tall, lanky guy in 1999 in Westwood. <laughs> that, was, that was me. <laughs> the chances that he would remember it are slim, but he I'll was be... standing in front of the Avco Theater in Westwood and yelled, it's fuck you and me. I... W- I will be. Sh- I'll give him a call after we're done, and I'll say, "Hey, guess what? That was me. That was Bill. Like, Who the fuck is that? Yeah, that's probably what he say. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Isaac Asimov, Roger Zelazny, Fritz Lieber. Okay. Fritz Lieber, I just bought, I wait. What did Fritz Lieber? Uh, uh, the Fafford and Gray Mouser series. Uh, okay, that's, that's like super fantasy yes, kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. So those those were some of my early influences from comic books. Stan Lee, um, definitely. You know, I grew up on Stan Lee comics. Uh, it's actually kind of amazing I grew up at all because when. I would comic books were sold at a store that was nearby my house, but it was across a busy street in Bloomfield. And I would get the comics, and my mother would be on the other side because she was like dropping off dry cleaning or picking up stuff or whatever. And then she'd see me walking across the street, my face buried in a comic book, cars slamming to a halt because I was paying no attention whatsoever to the stoplights because I was busy reading the comic. So in retrospect, it's kind of amazing that I actually managed to survive getting out of childhood. But those, those were a lot of my... The, the, you know what got me into comics? The George Reeves Superman series. Because if you remember that, at the end of the show, they'd always say, Superman is based on the character appearing in Superman magazines. And I went, there's magazines? And that's what led me... That show led me to comic books. It, it comes easily to the degree that I'm not afraid to sit down and write. Um, I've been writing 
ever since I was a kid. I mean, I, did, I was publishing fanzines when I was in my 20s. I was writing stories that were pretty much ghastly when I was 13, doing my own comic books, which convinced me that I was never going to be an artist. Um, but yeah, I've been, writing, I've been writing my whole life. And comic books, for me, were simply... I mean, yes, I love writing comic books, but they are just one of a variety of venues. And I am always trying to move in different directions with my writing because, to paraphrase Woody Allen, a writing career is like a shark. You have to keep moving or you're going to wind up with a dead shark. And that's obviously what I don't want to. So, I mean, yes, I've written comic books. I've also written novels, short stories, video games. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, doing a, I'm doing my first web series. That's going, it's, going to be appear, it's going to be appearing uh, as part of a new web channel called the, Heroic Wor- the Superhero World of Stan Lee, true believers. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's really a challenge to be writing in three to five minute segments that will ideally come together into an 11 episode whole, W-H-O-L-E, and um, which can then be, you know... No, and um, it, I'm it's, glad you clarified that. Yes. <laughs> My whole life is just one big eleven episode hole. And just like, um, you know, and it's just always and, and writing video games was a kick. I mean, yeah. I when I first was talked about writing video games, you have to understand that I thought I was hot shit when I was playing Pong, right? Just you know, I'm going. You have to write this, really. <laughs> But it's, it's really just incredibly challenging, and I'm always looking for new stuff to do. Uh, Bill, tell us about uh, starting out as a writer and performer. Did you start at both of these things at the same time? Were you writing material for yourself? Um, oddly enough, I was not very good at writing stuff for myself. <laughs> I was better writing for other people. Like We would have like a sketch group, and I was like, oh, you should do this, and this, this, and this, and I'll, um, I'll play the dad or something. You know what I mean? I was always kind of... I kind of went, you know, the other way. But, um, no, I mean, um, I know, yeah, you, it was just like a necessity kind of thing. And kind of more, you, you know, you're, I was always writing stuff, screenplays, little, um, you know, little short stories. And it, you know, it's something, like, if I went and, you know, uh, ran an air, my dad runs an air freight company, you know what I mean? And, like, if I went and did his job, I would still writing stuff because you just can't help it you know yeah, what I mean absolutely. it's like something you just can't you just kind of go like oh I have this idea I'm going to just do it so much of it is just doing it that's like the thing I, I realized for so long I, I, I was so used to doing it and then you get to like I would get to LA and you go into a coffee shop and everyone's doing it and then you're kind of like it's not the cool it's not the cool thing to do anymore so I'm going to sit around and just talk about doing it uh, which is kind of what I did with friends for a while you'd sit and bitch about stuff and why is this this way and that is that way and all stuff and then you start um, and then I, I got I, a friend of mine was uh, taking classes at Second City in LA and he said come see my show and that's when I went to his show and went oh my god people are doing comedy in LA like my age are doing sketch and stuff so I man I should get in on this and just doing something like that you kind of just go oh my god this is really hard you know what I mean? It's really hard to make good stuff. And so you have to work at it every day. And you just kind of work at it because you like it. And some days it fucking sucks. And you're sitting there like, I am, a, I am terrible. Like, this sucks. But then you, just, you, just keep, you just keep working at it, you know? And, I mean, and, and that's this common denominator in, like, so many people that I've worked with. 
you know, is that thing. It's just, you just keep moving forward. You're just compelled to do it. And it, you fail, and how you deal with failure is you just kind of, you know, uh, oh, I'm going too long, says Lauren. Mike. No, I'm joking. Uh, uh, no, but yeah, so that's... Yeah, yeah you, I mean, people, people say to me, I want to become a writer. I've been thinking about it. How do I do that? And I always say the same thing to them. If you're thinking about it, you're not going to be able to do it because becoming a writer is something that you do because not becoming a writer is simply not an option. You know, you, there's, your brain is wired in such a way that you, you have to get out there. You, have, you are compelled to say, I want to put my words and my thoughts out there. And they're so compelling that they deserve to be disseminated to as many, possible, as many people as possible with my name attached to it. You know, so that they will know who this came from. I mean, it's just, it's just, an, it's just an inner need. I mean, we are once, you know, writers are one step away from being the guys who are wandering down streets of New York City making stuff up as they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, but yeah. It, There's it, a reason a lot of writers drink themselves to death. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it is like a thing where you kind of just... But don't you think, yeah, it's like, I, I, re- I just remember being uh, so freaked out by it that I would want to talk about it because I was, aff- this is me personally, I was so afraid of it not going well that I would kind of put it off. And by putting it off, it was like talking about it. And then you get kind of bitter and cynical and things like that. And then you do it and it's not good. And your friends who are kind of the same way are like, well, that sucked. And you're like, oh, I guess I suck and all this stuff. You know, and you kind of like, you know, and it's this big thing. And, and so you just have to kind of say, um, you know, are people going, well, why are you doing it that way? It should be that way. And you go, I realized this epiphany. And I was like, oh, I just see it differently than you. You know what I mean? I just see it differently than you. Fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about writing is that you have to climb through all these layers of people telling you you suck to the point where all of a sudden people are saying, wow, you're you're getting better. And then, wow, you're really good. And then, wow, I want to hire you so that you can finally reach that plateau so that you can actually be paid for the stuff. And then it goes out into the world so that everyone in the internet can tell you you suck. Yeah, that's the thing. Everyone in the internet tells you you suck. It's a circle of life. That's the hard thing. Yeah, you say, fuck you, and then you go, and then the whole internet goes, fuck you. (laughs) And you're like, I do it my way. Fuck you. And it's like, fuck you. And you go, I love I love Tina Fey's speech. I don't remember what she was, what she had won the award for, but um, probably an Emmy. And she was talking about the people on the internet, and she was basically taking great delight in saying to everyone on national television, "And fuck you, this person on the internet." And she was naming them by their internet name, you know. And to this person, you know, oh fuck you too. I mean, it was it was just wonderful. I I have no problem with the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Then why don't you have a Twitter feed? On the internet, oh, I don't have a Twitter feed because I will. Do you have one? No, I do not have a Twitter feed. See, because the reason I don't have a Twitter feed is because I like we just had a a, a daughter and just writing the the email of like, hey everybody, look who was born, you know, like that two sentence thing took me four hours. And I was going crazy. And if I had a Twitter feed, I just wouldn't, I would have no life. It's the reason I didn't do cocaine. Because all my friends doing cocaine were having a blast. They're up all night. They're like, we're being crazy creative. This is going great. And you're like, oh, great. I don't want to do that because I'll go crazy, you know, and I'll go nuts. But it looks like you're having a blast. And that's kind of how I feel about Twitter. <laughs> that's really um, very quickly, and then we're going to get to questions from you guys. We have time for a couple. No. Um, what was the first thing you got paid to write? Do you remember? Yes. 
um, if we're talking about fiction, yeah. as opposed to when I was writing news stories back in my 20s, fiction, it's it, in my 20s. No, the roaring 20s. <laughs> yes, when I was working with Jack Warner in the 1920s. When we were putting together the silence. Uh, yes, I remember when that day I wrote... I was moving my mouth to be like the sun. Never mind. Oh, I got it. No, no, but yeah, but the people were listening. Oh, I got it. At any rate, uh, yeah, um, the very first thing that I sold that was fiction that I got paid for was a 300-word story for Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine that ended in a terrible pun. Why, why did it end in a terrible pun? Because Isaac Asimov's magazine liked to buy 300-word stories that ended in a terrible pun. Honest he, to God. He, uh, he wanted that? What? They must end in puns. They will. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they wanted. It's, it's a freaking market, and I was 26. That's so great. I'm going, okay. And it was great because I sold this story, and I went, ha-ha, the tough days are over. Now I can sell anything. No, not so much. Had you submitted a bunch of stories before this one was accepted? Yes. Uh, I submitted stories, but all of them were rejected uh, because they sucked. Um, but this one didn't suck. Well, it did suck, but it was the kind of right. suckage they were looking for. Right. It was a different kind. Um, the the very first the very first uh, w- one of my uh, my very first book submission was uh, a, a fantasy novel that my then agent submitted to Judy Lynn Del Rey of Del Rey Books. And I always remember, and I will always remember the rejection letter she sent, which was I could barely retch my way through the first hundred pages. I could not imagine vomiting my way through the entire manuscript. I would be intrigued to know who would buy this piece of crap. Uh, the answer, as it turned out, was Penguin Ace Books. Boom. Uh, and and, <laughs> and, it was, and uh, the book's name was Nightlife, which sold so well that we wound up doing two sequels. You know, so. You've you got to develop a, th- a thick skin. I mean, you just have yeah, to. Yeah, without a doubt. Do you remember the first thing you got paid to write? Um, I guess uh, SNL was really? like, yeah, that was the first thing. And then Judd Apatow paid me to write something that I don't think will ever get made. Um, it was a horror. It was a, like, a, like a horror comedy. It was a slasher movie. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he was like, I want you to do what you do with slasher movies, but had do you, that with... Had you written features before that? Yeah, yeah, I'd written oh. it. But nothing... Funny, uh, uh, weirdly enough, it was never anything really that funny. It'd be was it supposed funny. to be funny? Or? Yeah, no. The, the the thing with Judd, yeah, it was supposed to be. He was like, I, I remember Shaun of the Dead. What they did was zombie movies. Let's try to do something like that, but with a slasher movie. Um, so it was very real, kind of guy going through a relationship, but his girlfriend he finds out was like Laurie Strode 15 years ago, and he's having to deal with that. But it was so hard because anytime you had like the slasher element come in, it was just kind of like it was hard to be funny I was in the way that. it was yeah. hard to be funny in the way that he wanted to be funny. But it was a good lesson. I learned a lot about what I learned the most about that one was um, that, there, that you have to have with a longer movie, you have to have an emotion that kind of drives the whole thing. You have yeah. to have like a real legitimate. You can't just have jokes. You have to have like a real legitimate emotion, and that is the thing that you can hang all these other things on but it's like what does this person want what are they feeling and is it something I can relate to that I can write about and then it, it, and, and, and that that was very helpful but anytime you wrote like a guy comes in with a knife or whatever it would be like this isn't that funny anymore and, and, and I think we all agreed like but I still got paid so I don't give <laughs> the a fuck I don't give a shit alright let's get some questions from you guys um, I don't let me, let me see if I can make my while you're standing up 
Why are you standing up? He's standing up on a table, people at home. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, relax. Whoa, whoa. Hey, hey, stop it. Put your pants back yeah, on. Yeah, he's dude. taking his pants off. He's taking I his shirt. I have a pair of pants under my pants. Uh, he's got uh, 20 tattoos. From... Uh, hey, Bill. I'm hey. a big fan of um, the short Halloween. This oh, short thank Halloween. you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you're going to write more comics and what artists you like uh, in comics. Oh, uh, I don't know if we're going to do another one. That was Seth Meyers, and I did that with, with Kevin McGuire. And I, I don't know if we're going to do another one. Um, we have a Daredevil idea, but maybe... Maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. I don't know. Uh, Steve, how, Steve how Wacker. Was, how was writing this comic for It was great. Um, Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction gave us the best note, which was, it's Spider-Man. It's not Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, oh, man. And they were like, dumbasses. <laughs> I mean, Seth Meyers were like, the best, oh, the best story, we were just talking about this, I happened to see Dan Slott earlier today, and he was telling me that one of his the favorite concept, the, the favorite note that he ever saw, not a note, in a comic book, where Spider-Man, it's, it was a Stan Lee comic, and Spider-Man is facing off against Electro, and he bursts in, and Electro says, as Spider-Man villains will want to do, Spider-Man! And Spider-Man says to Electro, you forgot the hyphen. <laughs> And you sit there going, wait, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's exactly... The comedy stylings of Stan Lee, ladies and gentlemen. No, that's pretty much exactly what we went through. <laughs> uh, question oh, here. and Raphael, uh, we're going to uh, go... Peter, American yeah. uh, got a question uh, back on space cases. My God, okay. Can you talk a little bit about creating that and going through the process on that show? Sure. Uh, space Cases was a TV series that Bill Moomy and I created for Nickelodeon that uh, ran two seasons. Uh, you, you said you worked on Super Ninjas. I'm insanely jealous because back then in the mid-90s, uh, Nickelodeon wouldn't let us do any fight scenes, which kind of sucked considering that our lead character was the Black Power Ranger. I mean, Walter Jones, who had moves like you would not believe, and we couldn't use him for fight scenes because we couldn't have fight scenes. Now Super Ninjas, everyone's jumping around and doing kung fu and all that kind of stuff. Um, Bill and I created it for uh, a an independent producer named Albie Hecht. Uh, we called ourselves the Legions of the Albie Damned. And um, eventually he became an executive at Nickelodeon and he brought the series with him. And that's more or less how it got on the air, long story short. Uh, Bill and I wrote pretty much most of the first season. And at the end of the fr- and we had David Gerald as our story editor. And at the end of the first season, David Gerald said to Nickelodeon, you don't need me. Let Peter, and, let Peter and Bill do their show. And, Nick, and then he left, and Nickelodeon brought in another person to oversee us, who at the end of the second season said, you don't need me, let Peter and Bill do their show, at which point Nickelodeon canceled that. So thanks a lot. But um, it, was, it was a fun series about a group of kids in outer space and a ship trying to get home because it was co-created with Bill Moomy, so of course. And one, one, of, our, one of our You cast, might have to clarify that for these people. I think they all know Bill Moomy from Lost in Space. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it's, and interestingly enough, uh, probably from a casting point of view, we hired a young 13-year-old actress to play an engineering genius on a spaceship, on our, on our ship. The actress's name is Jewel State, who went on to be in Firefly, where she starred as a 
young engineering genius on a spaceship. We actually managed to reach through time and space and rip off Joss Whedon 10 years ahead of time. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for questions. Seriously? Really? We're done? That's uh, two everyone, questions? Everyone, this is Mark Gagliardi from the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Uh, I, forgot the, oh, I forgot the rule. Um, could you talk about the, uh, the relationship between the performers on SNL and the writing room on SNL? Because I know that you've got a list this long at the end of writers. You say you guys go in and sit down and you know, you'll lay claim to things and sit up all night writing. How much of that is... Uh, you guys uh, as the performers and writers and how much of it is with uh, this writing staff? It's kind of a mixture of both. I mean, uh, I kind of write with somebody, like if I have an idea for something, I'll go to a writer and say, hey, let's try this. Um, <clears throat> some people like Fred Armisen will just write stuff on his own or write stuff with a writer. Uh, other times I'll have a bunch of writers come up to me and say, hey, we got this thing for you, you know. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's different every time. Um, and then what happens is we read it out loud. We read 40 sketches at the table read. And, and, and once we're done with that, they make the picks. And on Thursday, the things that are picked, we do our rewrite table. And that's a blast because then you can really focus on – and then that whole staff that you see, they're all focused on your script – Making it better and saying i don 't i didn 't get this and i don 't understand this and you know and 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 that 's where I learned the most at s n l is those rewrite tables of someone going ah it 's kind of a double move it 's like a joke on a joke, just simplify it, make it one thing it 's this, and you go oh yeah that 's all I needed oh, okay you know um, that 's the best thing about it that 's really interesting thank you that 's really um, interesting. We have to go <laughs> before we go. Uh, Starting with Peter and then Bill, tell us what you are watching on television, what movies you're seeing, is there anything that you are really digging these days, comic books you're reading that you really like, uh, anything that you're really into that our listeners should be checking out? Uh, well, first of all, Sunday has turned into pure heaven because you've got because at 8 o'clock there's Once Upon a Time, which is because I love watching that with my wife and daughter, and then we send my daughter to bed, at which point we watch Dexter. <laughs> and... I don't, I don't, I don't know then, who did that. Like, everyone has the same look, and then I heard one, woo, and I was like, wait, I didn't see anybody you know, yell, woo. You know something? You guys should do a takeoff on Dexter, and you should be Dexter, because I oh, bet you could tried do the whole thing. You did? Yeah, that was, yeah, it was a little work? too dark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, go back to Samurai Deli, have Dexter yeah, be yeah, in the yeah, deli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, followed by Homeland. So that's you know that's a that is a lot of you know a lot of fun. Um, movies. I'm looking forward to seeing Looper, which I've heard tremendously good things about. Um, let's see. Any comics um, you're reading that we should know about? Uh, let's see. What am I reading? I love what Dan Slott's doing on Spider-Man. I, I really do. I and just to be even-handed, I like what Jeff Johns is doing on Aquaman. Yeah. So um, you know, also there's a lot of indie, independent comics that are terrific, like Razzle, which is Jeff Smith's. Um, let's see. So that's th- those are the things that I'm uh, that I've been really cool. enjoying lately. That's great. Thanks, Bill. What are you watching? What are you listening um, to? Uh, Television-wise, I mean Breaking Bad. I'm kind of a big Breaking Bad fan. Um, Movie-wise, I'm like I watch like a lot of old stuff. I'm a big. I watch. I just want to earn Ernest Lubitsch tear. I just watched a bunch of Ernest Lubitsch movies. Or uh, did just a bunch of Jacques Tati movies a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah, I show my daughter, my uncle, and she's like three, and she was like, ah, yeah, like she thought it was hilarious. She thought it was great. Um, uh, what else have I been watching? I watch a lot of, yeah, um, all of Raul Walsh movies. Watch this movie, Pursued. Have you ever seen that? Great movie. Um, just came out. Olive Films just came out with this amazing DVD thing of old movies. Um, uh, what have, and then what am I, I don't know. What was the other question? I don't know. Oh, uh, comics? Oh, comics? Um, X-Factor. Yeah. X-Factor. Yes. <laughs> you, you guys, thank you for this totally oh, unsolicited testimony. If you haven't, you really should check out X-Factor. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm I really like, into it. I, uh, I like, uh, what is it? American Vampire. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweet Tooth. I like that one. Uh, I like Lock and Key. I thought that was pretty good. That's pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's what we You're like, God damn it. Uh, yeah, he's working something out. Um, <laughs> but I love that. That, that comic's great. Um, and then music-wise, I like the new Grizzly Bear album. It's pretty good. <laughs> like everybody else. It is great. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think they uh, Please give a round of applause. Now leaving Nerdist.com.